Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're concluding our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2, our study in the book of Revelation. So let's turn to Revelation 11, 14 to 19, with a message entitled, The Seventh Trumpet. Kate Chesterton once said, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. You know, as I read the book of Revelation, that's precisely the case. Whether it be the suffering of the seven churches as they sought to survive against the pressures of the imperial might of Rome or the image of the souls of the martyrs under the altar of God, the book of Revelation presents us with a remarkably clear picture of both hopelessness and the most profound and audacious hope of all. We've come to the final section of the 11th chapter of Revelation. In this section, we're about to read of the events that surround the sounding of the seventh trumpet and, and of the events that surround the end of the age. But before the end has come, John has been given an assurance that not only will the church be victorious, but that she will have completed the task of the Great Commission. And with that, we're introduced to the blowing of the seventh trumpet. I'm reading Revelation 11, 15 to 19. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunders, an earthquake, and heavy hail. You know, John begins this description of the blowing of the trumpet by going back to where he was. He says, the second woe is past. John has said that the last three trumpets represented the last three woes on the human race. The first woe corresponds with the fifth trumpet, which results in the shaft of the abyss being opened and powerful demons tormenting people on earth for a period of five months. The second woe corresponds with the sixth trumpet, which results in the release of a great mounted troops, causing a third of the human race to die. As horrifying as those woes are, there's still one to come. But then, surprisingly, as we read of the blowing of the seventh trumpet, we don't read of a woe like the other two. And that leads us to ask, what what can that mean? You know, it is possible to read the last woe as the great judgment of God on the entire human race, which brings us before the great white throne of judgment, which we'll read about at the beginning of chapter 20. And of course, because after the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the book of Revelation continues for another eight chapters before we get to chapter 20, it's assumed by some that what follows in those next eight chapters takes us back over the same ground with further insight. 
And so if one superimposes the blowing of the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9 with the pouring out of the seven bowls in chapter 16, we do find a remarkable similarity between those two events. And that similarity has led many to assume that the trumpets and the bowls ought to be superimposed on top of each other, that, that they're simultaneous events. The assumption here is that John is retelling the same story, but from a different vantage point. There's simply a different version of the same event. But upon closer examination, we're going to find out that's really not so. And so, for instance, with the blowing of the second trumpet, one-third of the oceans turn into blood, but with the pouring out of the second bowl of judgment, all of the oceans turn into blood. Not a thing is spared. The same is true again of the third trumpet in comparison to the third bowl. The third trumpet signals that one-third of the world's fresh water is destroyed, but the third bowl describes all fresh water being destroyed. See, if one compares the fourth trumpet with the fifth bowl, one finds that in the fourth trumpet, the sun's light is dimmed by a third. But when the fifth bowl is poured out, the entire kingdom of Antichrist is plunged into complete and utter darkness. So I think it's fair to say that the bowls are not just an intensification of the plagues that come over the earth. Rather, the trumpets signal the beginning of God's judgment on the earth and serve as a divine warning. The bowls are not a warning at all. Complete judgment falls with the bowls. There there is no time left to repent. And so how should we understand the events of the blowing of the last trumpet? Well, in a sense, we should view it as we viewed the breaking of the seventh seal. Back then, we said that the content of the seventh seal is the blowing of the seven trumpets. And now as we continue on in Revelation, we're going to see that the content of the woe contained in the seventh trumpet is the pouring out of the seven last bowls of the judgment of God. So let me try to state that another way. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. And that's why the blowing of the seventh trumpet results in the statement, behold, the third woe is soon to come. But before the seven bowls of judgment begin, John interrupts his narrative. Instead of showing us what happens when the earth is destroyed, he takes us instead into heaven itself and helps us to see how that announcement of the final woe is treated in heaven. John tells us that heaven is rejoicing, So please don't understand this is, you know, heaven rubbing its hands in glee at the utter destruction of the earth and those who live in it. Rather, see this rejoicing as the fulfillment of the purposes of God. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You know, by speaking of the kingdom of this world in the singular, John is not implying that the earth has only had one kingdom. Of course, there have been numerous kingdoms. I mean, empires beyond number, men establishing their own power bases all over the earth. But by using the singular, John is implying that behind all the kingdoms of this earth lies but one source of authority, and that is the authority of Satan himself. I mean, we might do well here to think of the temptations of Jesus. You'll remember that Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and their splendor, and then he made the statement, These have been given over to me. 
This is also the idea behind Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 6 that that we don't wrestle with with flesh and blood, but with principalities and authority, places of wickedness in the heavenly realms. These places are always finding their way into the kingdoms of men. Now, please try to apply this. Whether it's the people of God struggling with evil in the very last days— or the Church of Jesus struggling with evil throughout her long history, the point always remains the same. The great battle for the church is to announce the kingdom of God in the presence of the kingdom that is ruled by the evil one. And that's very serious business indeed. But now as the seventh trumpet sounds and and the earth is ultimately judged, and the result will be the utter and complete defeat of Satan, the kingdom of this world is overthrown. See, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in in John 12, 31, where he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And that, by the way, is what the book of Revelation is all about. This is the story of the utter triumph of the Lamb. So notice again the latter half of verse 15. It speaks about the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, often in the Bible, the term Lord is applied to Jesus. It is a term of deity, but here it's a clear reference to the Father. The kingdom of this world, we are told, has now become the kingdom of God the Father and the kingdom of his Messiah, who is the Christ. See, this announcement of the seventh trumpet is therefore not not the announcement of another round of warnings. God is now acting with complete and utter and overwhelming power. He's not warning anyone. He's he's acting in complete dominance. Of course, as we come to the end of Revelation, we're going to see that the kingdom will consist first of a 1,000-year reign of Christ, and then when the 1,000 years are ended, the new heavens and the new earth will be brought into being. But here the announcement of the last blast of the trumpet indicates that human rebellion is now brought to heel. The Lamb has utterly triumphed. And this rejoicing at the triumph of the Lamb, superimposed against the utter destruction of the wicked, is the reason for rejoicing. It's not that heaven is glad when the wicked are punished, but heaven is definitely glad when the wicked are no more. And we on earth join in with the courts of heaven, for we too, even now, with eyes full of faith, can see that day is approaching. The Back to the Bible Canada-Israel experience is scheduled to return May of 2018. Back by popular demand, we return to the Promised Land accompanied by Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. Your days will be filled visiting incredible biblical locations such as King David's City, the Jordan River, and an exclusive sailing on the Sea of Galilee that includes a time of Bible teaching and worship. And there'll be special evening events planned that will include a musical concert and evenings with Phil Calloway and Dr. John Neufeld. Every detail is worked out to maximize the most memorable Israel experience you can imagine. All the details can be found at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And we'll also be offering an optional Jordan extension for those that are interested. So register soon. (laughs) 
Revelation 11, 17 to 18 contains one of the great hymns of praise in this book. This hymn of praise comes from the 24 elders who sit before the throne. We were first introduced to these elders in chapter 4 where we saw them seated on thrones surrounding the ultimate throne, the, the throne of God. You know, I thought then and still do that these are the leaders of the hosts of the Lord, the, the council of the holy ones. They're, they're called that in the Old Testament, the, the mightiest leaders of the angelic host. We also saw then that whenever the four living creatures gave glory to God, the, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, casting their crowns before the throne, and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. So it would seem that at momentous times, when, when God's ancient plan is unfolded, these elders take the lead in worship. Having sat in the council before the throne, they perhaps more than any other know what a significant moment the blowing of the seventh trumpet actually signifies. So falling on their faces, as they have done so often in the past, they worship. And in their worship, I see a lesson for all of us. See, I believe that we will have been in heaven for millions and billions of years and still find our hearts so overwhelmed by the beauty of God and the altogether wise plans of God that we will eternally never cease to be overwhelmed and overcome, astounded and overawed at the magnificence of our God. All eternity will not be enough time to plumb the magnificent depths of God. All eternity will not be long enough to explore and and revel in all of the attributes and the wisdom of our God. Amazement, wonder, astonishment, these things will never cease. There is that much in the loveliness of our God. And so as the last trumpet sounds and God puts an end to unrighteousness forever, the, the 24 elders begin to worship again. And the first thing they say is, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The elders realize that God in his wisdom has permitted rebellion and sin and satanic wickedness to have its day. He's allowed godless nations to defy the authority of God. All this has happened not not because these rebels had the power to defy God. No, 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 that's not the reason. It, It happened because God, out of wisdom, allowed them to defy him. But now the great power of God, whereby he is able to do all that his will demands, is used in such a way that he has begun to reign. Now, the Greek verb here is in the aorist tense, which can speak of a distinct moment in time. The elders are saying, at this very moment, as the seventh trumpet blows, you have begun to reign. That is, at this moment, you will no longer tolerate rebellion. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God hasn't always reigned. God is always and everywhere sovereign, ruling over all things. But when the kingdom of God arrives, all evil deeds which God has permitted in the past are now brought to an end. When the kingdom arrives, demons flee, evil ends, wickedness is smashed, and only that which is holy will prevail. And then the elders continue, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. See, at the outset, when when we read these words, we can see that these 24 elders are not universalists. They're not looking for the eventual salvation of everyone. You know, some time ago, a very popular book bore the title, The Wideness of God's Mercy. And the author tried to make the point that God was so merciful that in the end, love would always win. And he he meant by that to say that, that God would find a way to overlook every sin and that God would find a way to incorporate everyone into his kingdom. Well, At first, those words sound so inviting, I mean, don't they? But I suggest to you they are, in fact, God-dishonoring words. 
Those words suggest that the time will not come when there is a time of universal judgment. They suggest that God does not demand righteousness, that he has found a way that allows him to overlook sin even while that sin is unatoned for and in which there has been no repentance. You know, as frightening as the thought of hell is, there's a thought that's equally frightening. It's a thought that there will be no justice in the end. It's a thought that crimes against God and humanity will not demand an accounting and that justice will not be served. You know, it's the thought that the unrepentant will get off and go on throughout all of eternity, continuing to commit the same kind of flagrant violation of the purposes of God. But the plain testimony of the God of the Bible is that the entire human family will be judged. The dead will be raised and the dead will be judged. And then the 24 elders also speak of the time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. See, we're reminded of the words to the church in Smyrna, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And then the 24 elders worship, for the time is now at hand for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. And we should not read those words as if they promise an internal annihilation of the wicked. I mean, they don't. Rather, they are words that promise that those who hold positions of power will be destroyed. Their position will be taken from them. And then after this act of worship, verse 19 tells us, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Now, this is a description of the final coming of the kingdom of God. See, reading this verse does remind one of Matthew 27, verse 51. Immediately after Jesus yielded up his spirit, or immediately after his death, Matthew records this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This event happened in reality, but its occurrence is rich in symbolism. This was God's signal that with the death of Jesus, not only was access granted into the holy place for all who believe, But this event also signals the end of the need for temple and sacrifice. Hebrews 9 speaks of the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could enter in that once a year. But then says Hebrews chapter 9 verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing. And then ahead to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, the book of Hebrews was completed before the temple in Jerusalem had been burned to the ground. Indeed, now that the temple was destroyed, we see all the more clearly how the temple was no longer required. While the temple stood, it symbolized that the Holy of Holies was kept for worshipers, which indicated that their sin kept them from the presence of God. But now that Christ's once-for-all perfect, efficacious sacrifice had been offered up, a new curtain now separates us from God. That curtain is the body of Christ, a body into which we are now united by faith. So let's step back once more and understand what's being said. I'm reading Hebrews 8 verse 5. They, that is the temple priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
So both from the Old Testament law and from the book of Hebrews, we learn that the first tabernacle served as an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. So with that background, let's go back to Revelation 11. We're told that God's temple in heaven is opened and the Ark of the Covenant is seen. And if you think about it, this is the hope of every true believer in Jesus. While we know that through Christ's death, a spiritual door is open in which we are invited in prayer, in faith, to come before the Father in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we also know that this is but an anticipation of a much greater day to come. But there will come a day when our faith becomes sight. The heavenly holy of holies will open, and the Ark of the Covenant, that representation of the very presence of the Almighty God will be seen by his people, and we are invited not to just view it from afar. Rather, God invites his people into the Holy of Holies, which is his presence. And with his glorious vision, John then describes lightning and rumblings and thunder and earthquake and hail. And we are to understand in no uncertain terms that the God who reveals himself to his own is still the God of power, whose very presence makes us tremble. At this point in the end of the chapter, it's hard to miss the point, isn't it? It's this, until the final trumpet sounds, this reality is not yet ours. But because we know where the Lord of glory invites those who are his own, we wait, praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God of glory, we wait on you. Until the last trumpet sounds, the kingdom comes, and we are invited into the true holy of holies. You know, if you, my dear friend, have never surrendered your life to Christ, do it today. Say to the Lord, I've sinned and I confess my sin, but I believe that Christ has died for me, and I surrender my life into your hands, Lord Jesus. Take my life and make me your son or daughter. In Jesus' name, amen. John, you know, we've come to the conclusion of this volume two, this study in Revelation, and all the intrigue and the incredible things that will happen and all these things that we're striving to understand. But what I find very interesting, alas, as we conclude this study, you come back to an invitation to know Jesus. Yeah, I do think this is why Revelation is written. Um, it, it calls upon anyone who reads it to take it to heart. Um, ultimately, the application is the same regardless of our perspective. The application is that the triumph of the Lamb is a certain fact in history, and he will indeed triumph. And so we, we want to make the invitation to anyone who's listening, come to Christ. It's the, it's the only place where there's triumph in the end of the day. I mean, why would you lose your life? Why would you identify that which is with that which is passing away and, and even with that which is evil? I mean, confess your evil deeds before God. Uh, Christ will receive you if you come to him in faith. Um, that's always the lesson, and it's still the invitation that we need to make today. Thanks so much, John, and a great conclusion to this volume two of the series of Revelation. This is Back to the Bible Canada. Well, we teach the Bible. The Back to the Bible ministry team met to discuss in simple terms what this ministry is all about. Well, here's what was determined. We teach the Bible. That's it. Bible teaching that others would come to know and grow in Christ. Our world, country, communities, and neighbors need to hear the good news, and we're relentlessly committed to that purpose. 
We're praying that you'll stand with us. This June, we're asking you to help us to reach our goal of $338,000. Now that's a significant goal, but together it's achievable. This month, a group of friends have committed to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $75,000. So take advantage of this great opportunity. Double your impact as together we teach the Bible. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.